Hey, James, are you okay? What's bumming you out, honey? Oh, I just went to this singing contest and I bombed spectacularly. It's a shame. I took lessons from this new instructional DVD and everything. Well, what song did you sing? I I sang Clementine, just like the DVD instructed me to. Well, the Clementine's not that hard to sing. Why don't you play it? Let me hear what this DVD says. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. Uh, Let's get a second pair of ears on this. Pam? (laughs) Yes? I need you to hear this. All right. James, can you play that again? Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Clementine. Oh, my darling is definitely correct. Jeez. Who's who's saying that? Huckleberry Hound? Funny you mention that. It is by Huckleberry Hound. Well, now we know what he did after show got canceled. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. Hello everyone, I'm James Irish. I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. I'm Chrissy Harding. Welcome to the Pemmy and James and Chrissy, kind of, sort of, hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hi everyone. Considerable credit today and thanks to the Cartoon Research blog for much of the information used in this episode, specifically the article... Whatever happened to Huckleberry Hound? Give him some love, people. They do a lot of good work. Also, give love to Huckleberry Hound. He needs it. Yeah, Yeah, he does. (laughs) If he's making CDs on how to sing Clementine, he needs help. And he's the mayor of Jellystone right now. I think that's got to have a good stipend. I don't know. I think that town would drive you nuts. Technically, we could say he's already there, and it's a short drive. Ooh, true. Friends, this is an episode that is near and dear to me personally because... Certainly, while we've looked at our share of Hanna-Barbera shows and characters, many of which I have at least nostalgic fondness for, if not genuine love, none of them are the slow-walking, slow-talking dog that gave me that feeling like I had a warm blanket around me as a kid. So for my birthday episode this year, of course, we're talking Huckleberry Hound. Of course. And hang around till the end, because we do have a special surprise for James. Oh, okay. The genesis of Huck begins at MGM Studios where Tex Avery had come up with a new rival for Droopy in the cartoon The Three Little Pups. The Southern Wolf, as he's basically known now, was voiced by Dawes Butler in a Southern-style drawl, and would go on to appear in three more cartoons for MGM by either Avery or the team of Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera. Those are usually directed by Michael Law, but there's a reason why I want to mention that, but we'll get to that later. Most notable about The Wolf was he never once lost his cool and collected attitude, besides the occasional meow, man, despite any setback put in front of him. (laughs) Show's over, pal. (laughs) Dawes based the voice on a neighbor his wife had in North Carolina, not on Andy Griffith, as the legend once had it, since Dawes used the voice before Andy rose to significant prominence. And he didn't use it at just MGM either. The voice would, in fact, pop up in a few different Looney Tunes cartoons of the era. Such as? Well, I, I do recall one propaganda short about uh, savings and investment when Sylvester gets an inheritance and Elmer Fudd, of all people, is giving him a lecture. That's interesting. 
Yeah. It's a single line, but you can tell it's him. I also wouldn't be surprised if he used that voice on a few things for Walter Lance, because he did a few stints on Walter Lance's stuff, like some Woody Woodpecker cartoons and whatnot, too. That makes sounds fair. I mean, it is a good voice to use. So when following up on the foundation they had built with Rough and Ready, Hanna-Barbera set out to make their first full half-hour series. And while Bill and Joe thought Yogi Bear was their strongest character, and arguably history has borne that out, Kellogg's, the financial sponsor of just about everything Hanna-Barbera was doing at the time, allegedly thought there were too many bears at the forefront of kids' programs. What bears are they talking about? Well, uh, I'm pretty bear over at, uh, at Disney. And Barney Bear over at MGM. And, Neither uh, of those are exactly forefront characters. Smokey the Bear? And there's also, well, you gotta remember, is we're looking at it from 2023 glasses. We're not looking at it probably at the time when this, when this character was out. So we don't know how big Humphrey Bear probably was at that time. Or how big people thought he was going to be. Or, or what they were rerunning on syndication at the time. Yeah, so we don't we don't really know what really was going on at the actual time. I mean, we can look, I mean, there probably were shows, if we go back to, the, if we were living in the 70s, there were probably shows being run that nowadays you'd be like, what show is that? What show are you talking about? That were probably a fad at the time. Who knows? Okay. Anyhow, so Huckleberry Hound named after Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, was chosen as the lead character and ostensible host of the show. Perhaps most importantly, though, Hanna-Barbera would, within a certain time frame, bring in Warren Foster, a veteran writer of Looney Tunes short subjects under director Frizz Freeling, to write a significant number of Huckleberry Hound shorts. I do want to uh, put in a small plug over to some of Pemmy's stuff that he's done with Huckleberry Hound. If anyone wants to see some of the early Kellogg's uh, commercials oh, with Huckleberry Huckleberry Hound, he does actually have those up on his up on Artificial Orange Studios to check out. And they actually are you could see Kellogg's really to kind of go with Huckleberry Hound. <laughs> you can see that uh, Kellogg's was obviously financing them because all those commercials look are animated way better than the actual shows were. They had to make them last. Warren Foster had this reflection on old Huck. He is a sort of Tennessee-type guy who never gets mad no matter how much he is outraged. He is the fall guy, and a large part of his humor is the way he shrugs off his misfortunes. To Huck, nobody is really bad. Of course, Huck's slow pace didn't mean an equally slow mind. He could match wits with nearly anything put in his path, and if he's against someone properly despicable, it'd generally be a fair battle for this gentle old hound dog. That's fair, because we do see that in some of the cartoons. As in the product description on the iTunes store, Huck makes the impossible seem easy, and the easy seem impossible. That's accurate. <laughs> That's very accurate. Don Messick would accompany Dawes Butler on this and the majority of these funny animal cartoons from the earliest days of Hanna-Barbera's output. And for Huckleberry Hound, Don would most frequently provide narration, which would become another major ingredient to the show's comforting nature. Certainly you can attest, Pem. Yeah, that's one of my favorite gags in cartoons in general is when they start talking to the narrator. But 
especially since I, I know that James knows about my really, really old webcomic that I did once where James was the narrator. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Mercifully, yeah. his art has grown since then. Eh, I'd like to think my sense of humor as well, and writing, and, Just and in general. Uh, pacing, and uh, layouts, and uh, yeah, I think you get the point. <laughs> yeah. So the Huckleberry Hound Show would launch with Huck, Yogi, and a third feature, Pixie and Dixie with Mr. Jinx, as its components. He hates Mises the Pieces. <laughs> We've looked at some of Yogi's shorts from this time frame, and rest assured the Mises are on the list, but today is all about my favorite cartoon hound dog. Yeah, this was my mom's favorite show growing up. I, I want to kind of throw this in, because my mom will tell, will like to tell James that you have excellent taste. Because when we were watching this, my oh, mom actually me. Yeah, because my mom made me, when I was watching some of these, my mom came in and joined me, and we ended up watching a whole lot of the Huckleberry Hound shorts from this, because she grew up watching Huckleberry Hound, and Huckleberry Hound was her favorite character. So... She wants. She wanted me to tell you that you have excellent taste, James, and characters. And we'll talk a little bit about why at the very end. Mm-hmm. For now, we're going to go with an episode Pemmy suggested, and for good reason, Lion Tamer Huck. Our narrator, Don Messick, introduces the book How to Be a Lion Tamer, which describes you need a sturdy cage, a whip, a pistol, a chair, and a foolish... Uh, uh, foolhardy individual. That's Huck, naturally. naturally. Can I give some uh, animation uh, trivia on this? Go yeah. for it. Uh, earlier I mentioned that back in MGM when uh, they dissolved Tex Avery's uh, animation studio, or animation division, and Hanna-Barbera ended up taking over for the Droopy cartoons, Michael Law is the one who uh, directed the Droopy cartoons for MGM during that period. One of which, uh, Droopy Knight, actually got it nominated for an award. An actual Oscar. Michael Law, however, is also the animation and layout credit for this particular episode. Okay. Oh, and cool. you can tell that he worked for uh, Tex Avery because uh, when Droopy talks to the audience, he's got his mouth movements are very Tex Avery-ish. And another way to tell that Law's in charge of the animation for it is uh, when he animates characters, they show their teeth a lot more than you normally do. So they kind of like pronounce, there's a lot of emphasis on pronouncing certain words just want to throw that all out there all right and of course as the book continues you need a lion who dawes performs with one of his tough guy voices like he would for the dragon on san freeberg's saint george and the dragonette hey i'm the fire-breathing dragon you must be saint george right yes sir i see you got one of new 45 caliber swords it's suggested by the book to start with a smaller lion which Huck understandably prefers. But the bigger lion shoes the smaller one off, who's feeling sick anyway. So the first rule is don't talk about Fight Club. I mean, show no fear. Although I do want to throw in here, from this point on, that lion has no right to grouse about working with an amateur. He had an out. Hmm. I, I do want to say that uh, when Huck's not showing fear, they actually draw him with like a human hand. It's kind of weird. <laughs> He's got, like, human nails and everything. Huck casually hums Clementine as the narrator explains that jungle cats can sense fear. Of course, it's easy to spot it when Huck's knees are knocking so much. That's true. 
So now the, the mind games begin as the lion sharpens his claws and files his fangs to nice, neat points, scolding the narrator with a roar for suggesting he might be afraid too. <laughs> oh, boy. With the uh, help from the narrator, Huck tries to hide it with a very toothy laugh. <laughs> I don't know, is the narrator helping at this point? Not really. You're no help to me. I've never been any help to you. <laughs> this gives me a lot of the vibes from those like goofy like shorts where it's like goofy tri- how-to shorts. Yeah. Oh my god, yes. Which is something we're, we've got on the docket for 2025 for sure. <laughs> a light crack of the whip, it's explained, will keep a lion in check. Light. You see, Huck overshoots the mark and severely enrages the lion so he has to escape to the safety of the other side of the cage. Yeah, the door. (laughs) Now the use of the chair is explained in concert with the whip, but never while the lion is eating. Never while anyone is eating. It's just rude. Unfortunately, Huck doesn't listen to that. Yeah, of course he tries this as the lion's enjoying some delicious-looking ham. I love that it's like one of those cartoon hams that you always see, but the lion is eating it with a fork. It's and daintily, it's kind of adorable yeah. almost. Well, the lion has some manners, I guess. Unlike Huck in this short, seemingly. Pretty much, Huck's trying to prove himself to the narrator at this point. Yeah. So Huck pesters the lion, who refuses to budge until Huck admits to the audience he never knew what the tamer needed the chair for. And the lion takes a page out of the pro wrestling handbook and smashes it on Huck's head. He knows now. (laughs) Huck's escape this time puts him and the lion on the wrong side of the door. And the lion seems more agitated at Huck's amateur status. Hey, I gotta learn how to do it sometime. (laughs) I love it. He's like, can I come into my cage now? (laughs) It says a lot when the lion wants to be back in the cage. <laughs> the lion's like, I am done. Now, if I could backseat direct a little bit here, I would have punched this gag up just a little bit more. Instead of Huck wondering why you used the chair in the first place, the lion should have been, No, 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 you're doing it all wrong. You use the chair like this. Whack. And then Huck turns to the audience and says, Well, now that can't be right. Yeah, how do you use a chair when it's broken? <laughs> well, they were still finding their footing at this point. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. And trust me, we'll see a lot more of that finding their footing in this episode. But now, forced to use force, Huck has to resort to the pistol. And it doesn't go as well as he likes to think. Yeah, the lion seems terrified. He explains he's gun shy. Hmm. Unfortunately, that's just enough that's just enough to get Huck's confidence up so the lion can steal the gun from him. Yeah, right while Huck's looking away at the fourth wall. You know, uh, come on, Huck. Now the lion shoots away. How many bullets are in that pistol anyway? One A plus lot. One plus two plus one plus one plus two plus one. <laughs> you knew there was going to be a clue reference coming from me. Thank you. Oh, well, Huck claims he's humoring the lion with his latest escape, claiming he was shooting blanks. Yeah. Yeah. Huck has a glass of water and, yeah, 
we know where this gag's going. This was telegraphed. <laughs> if this was a this gag was telegraphed coming. But it's a well executed telegraphing at least. Oh, there I, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> I, I think the part that makes it the funniest is Huck never notices it. I agree. It, yeah, because most of the times when they do this, the the character looks down and goes, oh, where Huck is just like keeps drinking, like, yeah, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, because there's a Yogi Bear short where Yogi pretty much does the same gag, but on that he actually looks down and sees it and goes, yipes, and then runs. Yeah. Like, here, Huck is completely unaware. <laughs> so next up, I fell into a burning ring of fire. A burning ring of fire. Jeez, I should have used that in the audition. And it's set up for the lion to jump through. But as the narrator exposits, sometimes the tamer has to set an example by doing it first. I love how Huck taunts the lion, too. It's like, you're like 0 and 3 at this point with the lion. And he's like, you're a coward, and dumps and does it. And it's like, dude, you're not winning. (laughs) At least he was listening to the narrator this time. That's true. For once he listened. So Huck jumps through the hoop several times without harm. Until the last time sets his tail alight. I'll smell smoke. Oh, when there's smoke, there's fire. Naturally, the lion's not impressed. I, I don't know. I would be. I mean, look how fast Huck, Huck went up. This is the most, like, just irritable lion ever. <laughs> this is fair. But now it's time for the tightrope act, with the lion supposed to do the walking. Huck cracks the whip again and again, making the lion so nervous he channels Joe Besser. Ooh, he makes me so nervous. I, I still wonder how the heck he got the lion up there in the first place. Fair question. Within moments, the lion gets a dizzy spell and falls landing on Huck. It's just as well. The kid wasn't going to make it anyhow. R.I.P. Huckleberry Hound. So that's the end, and I have to admit, the idea of a lion being more annoyed by working with a rookie tamer than anything else is actually a good bit of business. I think that aspect of it could have been developed a little bit more, as I elaborated on earlier. But hey, it's a decently executed cartoon. And I also want to give credit on the animation front that as far as like one of the first season episodes go, they managed to keep a Huck's model pretty consistent and accurate throughout the entire thing, too. He he comes off kind of wonky looking in some of these early, early ones. Now, my question that I have, though, um, because I did wonder this a little bit. Is this the first cartoon where he starts singing Clementine, or does he sing this one in all, like, even earlier than this one? I think he does. He, he's done it since the first episode, I think. I wonder how they decided to use Clementine for his song, and not, like, another song. Well, probably helps that it was in the public domain. And that's fair, too. Well, yeah. Of course, you've done some fair. digging into this. I did do some digging, just because I was curious about Clementine. Um, did you want me to talk about it? Of course. Oh, okay. I did it for my own curiosity and stupidity. So I wanted to, so with Clementine, um, a little bit of that was, I'm going to just give the reason why I got curious about it first. My mom was, as I said, Huckleberry Helm was my mom's favorite cartoon character growing up. She loved the show, so she would watch it when she was younger. And my grandpa would kind of watch it with her. And he actually learned how to sing the song Clementine. So he would sing the song to her at bedtime. So he actually learned how to sing Clementine for her. And 
funnily enough, when I learned that, I learned how to sing Clementine so I could sing it back to my grandpa. Aw. Aw, yeah. So I actually can sing. I actually, that was one of the first songs I learned how to sing on my own was Clementine. I did want to try to sing it uh, for a competition. I was told that it wasn't a complicated enough song for that. Of course, I also didn't like my chorus teacher at the time either, so. But interesting enough, so Clementine, actually, the lyric for Clementine was written in 1884 by Piercy Montrose. But the actual history of it itself, it's hard to say because there is an actual old tune called Down by the Lit River Lived Lived a Maiden. But the actual basis for the song goes back even further, and no one knows the actual origin. It can either, some say it's an old Spanish ballad. And some say it's an old Irish ballad. No one really knows the true history of the melody, Oh My Darling, Clementine. So it's hard. They can't really trace it. Uh, but they do know the words were written in 1884. I would say probably it is. In, I don't know if it would be in public domain by the time Huckleberry Hound was written. But then again, at the time, copyright it was a very loosey-goosey thing by the time it was written. Copyright laws really didn't get tightened up until Mark Twain got involved in the 1900s, which is an interesting story, <laughs> which we don't have time for here. But I, but Clementine's a really weird song to have in a child's cartoon because it's about death. Like, Clementine dies <laughs> in the song, and the, the singer is wishing she didn't die because he doesn't save her like the song is about how she falls into a river and drowns and because the singer couldn't swim he lets her drown it's morbid (laughs) well i I do think one of the gags is he doesn't actually remember any of the rest of the words other than oh my darling oh my darling and that her shoes are number nine yeah yeah in a cavern in a cavern excavating for mine lived a miner 49er and his and his daughter chubby clementine yeah and and the thing is is that the original lyrics don't actually have her shoes as number nine people changed variations of the song uh my favorite variation of it and me and uh, James were talking about it before we started the podcast was by Tom um, Lear. Uh, he actually wrote up to 15 different versions of the song. Five of them have been actually recorded on an album called An Evening Wasted with Tom uh, Lear. But it is, a, it is a very popular song. Kids are taught how to sing it. Singers sing it. I'm sh- I don't know of a single country singer who has not sang a version of it. It's um one. It's on the top 100 country songs list. It's an, an interesting song. Another song that my grandpa used to sing is a song called "Lazy Mary," um, and it's what he used to sing to my mom and my aunt to get their asses out of bed because <laughs> they like to sleep in to get them to church on time. And it goes, "Lazy Mary, get out of bed. We need the sheets for the table instead." And it's actually an Italian song. But yeah, so that's a little bit of the history of Clementine. I don't know if it was more popular in the South. It could have been, um, which maybe which would fit Huck's character. It's also worth mentioning that even the basic lines that he he'll even forget the basic lines he usually knows. As one of these shorts actually has him say, "Oh my darling, oh my darling, what's your name?" Yeah, this very short that's next. I, in and fact. I think a lot of that's Sheriff Huckleberry. Yeah, I think they do that to play up uh, to play up a gag a little bit, which is fun. 
So, Sheriff Huckleberry, dialogue and story sketches were done by Charles Shows and Dan Gordon. Animation, however, is done by Kenneth Muse, who is a big, long-time uh, contributor to Hanna-Barbera. Uh, he actually worked with them clear back to when they were doing uh, Tom and Jerry shorts for MGM. And he worked uh, for uh, Hanna-Barbera from since the start to clear, like, um, doing stuff as late as Challenge of the Super Friends. Oh, nice. Uh, and he was... He was a workhorse because uh, there's like, I think, four episodes of the first season of The Flintstones that Kenneth Muse animated all on his own. He also animated the intro to uh, Top Cat. So, in our short, it's the Old West. Because it's early television and westerns were everywhere. Our narrator gives us a grandiose introduction to Huck, just strolling and whistling. And the plot is introduced via a sign for the Dalton Gang hideaway. Variations of the Dalton Gang appear in quite a few Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Which we'll get into uh, after we sum up the short. Yep. See, Huck's got a warrant to arrest Dinky, the runt of the Dalton litter. What a clean-cut family group. Dirty Dalton, dangerous Dalton, detestable Dalton, desperate Dalton, despicable Dalton, dastardly Dalton, and Dinky Dalton, he's my man. Lucky he's the littlest Dalton. So, approaching the, the hideout with a variety of signs, danger, keep out, you'll be dead, gangster hideout straight ahead, something to that effect. Not, yeah, not exactly being inconspicuous or anything. Right. Huck knocks on the door and demands they open up in the most casual name of the law possible. To which, Huck is greeted by gunfire. Doesn't face him a bit, though. You know, there are certain days when certain people knock on my door and I really wish I could greet them with gunfire and make them go away. This is definitely one of those cases where the limited animation just makes it funnier because he's just, like, has no response to that gun pointing out and shooting. <laughs> yeah, he's just completely like, yep, it's a gun. Kicking the door down, Huck demands the residents stick him up. <laughs> Turns out Dinky has had a growth spurt. He's more than twice Huck's size! And he's got some bushy eyebrows, too. I, I want to ask, does anyone else think that he looks a little bit like Joe Friday from Dragnet? Jack Webb? I, I see it now. I can kind of see that. Can you see it? Like, I was thinking that when I saw it, I'm like, he looks like Jack Webb. Still, the law must be carried out. And Huck attempts to arrest Dinky, whose wrist and hand is so big, he can only cuff the pinky finger. He got Dinky's pinky. <laughs> <laughs> Dinky laughs it up as he spins Huck over his head and launches him out of the shack. I feel there was a missed opportunity not to turn that into, not that he didn't turn Huck into a yo-yo. Fair. Still, true to form, Huck isn't even mad. He just thinks Dinky's not listening. But no direct approach at all is working. Well, you know, he's a Dalton. So now the attempts at outthinking Dinky, I almost said outthinking Dinking, <laughs> begin. And Huck will do it man to man over the phone. <laughs> That's kind of fair. The old Western telephone. <laughs> ring, 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 ring. Huck calls and the comically polite Dinky answers, confirming his identity with jabs and bullets. Well-timed, especially for this early in Hanna-Barbera's existence. 
I love that he literally punches him right through the phone. Yeah. So Huck asks him to hold and goes to grab him from behind. He checks if it's safe with a hat on his stick, observing that a feller who takes a sheriff deputy job must have a hole in his head. And he gets shot right as he says that. Huck has a hole in his head now, and even to that he responds with little to no bother. Just call me drafty. Just call him a drafty. Oh, Huck. Now, the next scheme, battering down the door with a log, doesn't much work either, thanks to Dinky's strength and the shack somehow being much smaller than it seemed at first. Dinky, a Time Lord, confirmed? <laughs> it's just another version of the TARDIS. This is a pretty classic Hanna-Barbera gag, is always using the, the battering ram. I mean, let's be honest, the shack is bigger on the inside. <laughs> Oh, Mordekainen's uh, Marvelous Mansion spell. Okay. It's also another good example of just where the low-budget animation actually makes it funnier, because it just lifts the hat, just lifts the shack right up and then puts it right back down. It's like, foop, foop. Returning to brain power, Huck approaches in a suit of knight's armor. Not a bad idea. Though, uh, he has as much success as Lanny Poffo did wearing a suit of armor to a come-as-you-are battle royal. I'll have to link you to that one. Lanny Poffo, of course, being Randy Savage's brother. Ah. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah! Yeah, I think I remember that. Huck's bulletproof, but not hammer and anvil-proof, as Dinky chisels him down to size and into the shape of a toy car. Through all of this, Huck's not even in pain. He's not even mad. Yeah, he's just (laughs) admiring Dinky's sense of humor right as he falls off a cliff. Uh, And of course, Dinky eventually falls to that old trope that all villains end up falling into, where he reveals his final plan. Yep. You see, all good westerns must come to an end with a showdown. So here we have one. And Dinky has a bullet with Huckleberry Hound's name on it. Huck's so glad he said so. It's very, actually, very nicely written, too. So, Dinky's got some damn good calligraphy work. So, Huck places a sign with that name on Dinky's behind. Oh, yeah, this bullet's also loaded with dynamite, Dinky tells the fourth wall, as he fires before Huck is ready. You know what? You can, uh, we could ask Jerry, but I think him and my mom have already left for the party because he actually makes bullets. I don't know how you uh, fill that up with dynamite. That and cartoon logic. Yeah. That's true. But the bullet knows what its target should say, and goes right for the sign after two U-turns. Dinky, of course, realizes too late what's happening. So the announcer bids Huck farewell as he strolls off, and Huck replies, Adios, amigos! And Huckleberry Hound has killed a man. I kind of, for this one, I was hoping that when the, the announcer goes, Goodbye, Huckleberry Hound. I was waiting for the bullet, like, huckling, shh, and having a bullet come flying out of nowhere to go after him. Because it's like, wait, that's Huckleberry Hound. <laughs> that would have been a stronger ending. That's my only complaint with this cartoon. Other than that, this was one of the better, very early Huck shorts. They did quite a few Western cartoons with Huck. I wonder if this is... What partially ended up inspiring the Quick Draw McGraw show later. It's a possibility. Well, the Daltons would ride again and again over the coming years. Dinky would return in Lawman Huck, and would apparently turn up in, yes, the Quick Draw McGraw show. 
appropriately enough. Though I can't narrow down which episode due to the series being a little harder to find. Yeah, because it never got a DVD release for a multitude of reasons. Which sucks, because I really like Quick Draw McGraw a lot. But yeah, seemingly some ep- some of the episodes have issues with the master tapes being in not so great condition. And then there's some uh, licensed music used for the backgrounds that also cause issues. So after a period of dormancy, Dinky would then reappear with a new design, alongside brothers Dastardly and Dirty Dalton in, yes, Scooby-Doo's Laugh Olympics. This particular iteration of Dinky would show up again in The Good, The Bad, and The Huckleberry Hound, which was one of the Santa Barbara Superstar 10 made-for-TV movies, this time with new brothers Stinky, Pinky, and Finky. And this quartet would resurface in the 2017 revival of Wacky Races. Yep. I think they also appeared in Impossible Posse, which was one of these shows on the CB Bears show, but I don't, I'm not 100% sure on that. Either way, not bad for a bunch of lawless varmints. Yep. No, not bad at all, actually. When we return from the break, we have both the weakest of the shorts we're looking at and arguably the strongest of the shorts we're looking at. Stay tuned. Huckleberry Hound will be right back on Cartoon Network after this short pause. Wait a minute. Hound? Pause? (laughs) That's pretty good. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, what Christmas is complete without the Grinch and Ebenezer Scrooge? We look at the timeless 1966 collaboration between Dr. Seuss and Chuck Jones, followed by Disney's take Charles Dickens' story through the lens of Mickey and company. So join us as we reminisce about these all-time favorites in two weeks. So while Dinky and his brothers have the longest-lasting legacy within Hanna-Barbera, neither he nor Leo the Lion, the Pete Puma-sounding jungle beast, have reoccurred against Huck as many times as Powerful Pierre, or Powerhouse Pierre, or whatever name the story gives him. It's just always a Pierre. Sometimes it's not even consistent within the same short. He's a blatant French-Canadian stereotype, and Pierre started as another outlaw type, but would go on to challenge Huck whenever anything competitive came our hero's way. For instance, this first season episode Ski Champ Chump. Yeah, I I noticed when I was watching a lot of the other shorts with mom, because, you know, we had to because she insisted. He's always something Pierre. So the championship cross-country ski race is set to start, and we spot Pierre being introduced as a great sportsman. And Pierre says, oh, it's all true. (laughs) Actually, if I remember right, uh, he looks completely different, but uh, one of the Mumbly episodes has a villain named Powerful Pierre, and he's like a giant, like, uh, lumberjack. So next, Huckleberry Hound is introduced as having, uh, nothing. Nothing. Huck introduces himself to Pierre, and they're not off to a great start. Made worse when Pierre's love of money comes to the forefront. I mean, who doesn't love money? <laughs> uh, that's fair. Well, more money, more problems. <laughs> does remind me of, I think, one of my favorite lines from Quick Draw McGraw, which is, what I always wanted, money. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the gun, they're off. 
Or Huck would be if Pierre didn't shove him into the snow with a thwack of his ski pole. Of course, as the narrator points out, he did apologize. Yeah, and Huck's so polite, he accepts. He's at least a polite villain. (laughs) For now. (laughs) For now. As Pierre gloats, Huck suddenly overtakes him with a, Hello, top sportsman. So long, top sportsman. It's like the tortoise and the hare. This is kind of where we see the variation Huck provides on the droopy formula. Instead of being completely stoic, he's just always amiable, even when he's making the impossible look easy and making the easy look impossible. He's just always aw shucks. Yeah. Pierre hitchhikes on Huck's skis and claims Huck doesn't know. Well, Huck does, but shuckins. Maybe he's tired. (laughs) Of course... A nearby tree branch gets Pierre off Huck's skis. Don't. Well, you know, when you're lazy, karma will take you out. Yep. Thanks to some shortcuts, Pierre's back in the race and decides it's time for some trickery. He sets up a phone call for Huck and pretends to be a lady named Fifi. I like how she says Huxleberry. <laughs> I love how they. She, he's like, I like how she says my Huxleberry, which in I like how it's a callback to in the beginning beginning of the the short where Pierre goes Huxleberry and Huck goes it's Huckleberry. Yeah, he gets offended when he does it, but you know, when a girl does it, it's it's a it's, it's fine. So while on hold, Huck watches Pierre zoom by. So what does he do? He attaches the skis to the phone booth and resumes the race. While waiting for her. <laughs> yep. And passes him. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm now questioning, how really good of a skier is Pierre? So now Pierre starts looking for another shortcut and spots a rock someone left behind. Tipping it to crash onto Huck, again, branches are Pierre's undoing. That's one strong branch. Don't mess with Mother Nature, man. Just don't do it. Well, who knows? I mean, considering how it bent, it might be from a rubber tree. That's true. Hmm. Whatever the case, it seems the trees have it out for Pierre, as one jumps right in front of him as he attempts a rocket-powered boost. I always, I feel trees always have it out for skiers. I don't know why, but every single time that they always do skiing, somehow trees just seem to jump in front of skiers. Well, that should be the number one lesson for anybody attempting to ski. Watch out for that! Ah! Tree! Uh, Also, be careful about your... Flying your kites next to them, too. Charlie Brown teaches us that one. So Huck scolds his rival, and Pierre just grabs the dog and turns his skis into an improvised helicopter. I'm not even going to ask how that worked. Don't. Yeah. How is Huck supposed to get out of this? By his rival accidentally skiing into a sawmill getting cut in half. You know, at this point, you're just splitting hairs. Yeah, I, I know how. I Look, I, I sympathize with Pierre here. I've. I've had days where I just have a splitting headache. He's of two minds now. He's a real cut-up. Ladies and gentlemen, the fifth banana split, Pierre! Yay! (laughs) Huck is far less impressed with Pierre now, as the knave goes for sawing a hole in an icy lake. Huck arrives, and the rest of the ice is what plummets, putting Pierre in the drink. That's a classic. (laughs) That is a classic. Huck advances on the finish line, but Pierre beats him there with a rope tied to the pole where the announcer's speaker is perched. Huck struggles as Pierre gloats, 
but the hound manages to get free, taking the rope and pole with him, and the speaker lands on Pierre, giving him an earache of an announcement, both physically and emotionally. That's almost like a wacky racist level ending. <laughs> I, yeah, I was about to say. Huck is your winner, and Pierre is left with one comical cartoon lump. I literally was just waiting to have like a motley laugh somewhere. Though, uh, well, Huckleberry Hound says it's still about good sportsmanship. Pierre makes a point to say that he still would have preferred the money. Avi hasn't learned his lesson. So if I'm being honest, I think Pierre was more effective in his first appearance. There were still a few clever moments, but a lot of this cartoon was business as usual with the kinds of gags we'd seen a lot before this. Now, obviously, there's we got to keep into account the saying, there's nothing new under the sun. But, you know, compared to a, a lot of the other Huck shorts, this one comes off a little more pedestrian. Well, I do have to give them credit with this one, though. They don't have Huck out and out being immediately upset with Pierre. Like, you actually... Huck gradually starts to get upset. Like, at first he's like, oh, it was a mistake. He must be tired. Oh, like, he, he, he starts off giving Pierre the benefit of the doubt. And then you see towards the end where he's like, okay, something's wrong here. Dude's a jerk. <laughs> like, he gradually gets there. Which any one of us, if we were in a situation similar to this, we would eventually get there too. So, like, you kind of feel with Huck. Like, you grow with Huck in this where you're like, dude. Like, you're like, first, like, you know, yeah, it happens. Eh, you know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And then you're like, man, he is a jerk. Because <laughs> Huck doesn't see what we see. He doesn't see peers aside to us. So I, I kind of like how they pace this one, where you have Huck eventually getting to the point where he's like, he's a bad guy. <laughs> but as if karma was looking to make up for it, our final episode is indeed a Warren Foster written episode, Spud Dud. This one's from season three. What a title. <laughs> Story director is also Alex Lovey. We mentioned him before. Uh, he wor- used to work at Walter Lance's studio doing stuff for like Woody Woodpecker and whatnot. But we also mentioned him in the Clue Club episode because he was also story director on that too. Mm-hmm. I, I do have to put a disclaimer here. Um, I had to watch this one in Spanish. Whoa. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> this this one, unfortunately, did I could not find an English, an English version of this. Everyone I found was either in Spanish or Arabic. I wish you let me know. I wish I knew. I could have sent you a... Uh copy i had it's okay i i was like oh i have to brush off my spanish now (laughs) (laughs) it was it was very interesting hearing the spanish voice for huckleberry hound sadly the only spanish i remember after my two years of spanish in high school is no habla espanol (laughs) (laughs) and it was it was i was sitting there i'm like oh is it it wasn't like like someone just spoke over it was sounded like they actually like made the cartoon and actually gave huckleberry like an, a spanish voice actor for it so it wasn't like you know like like they actually like someone just started talking over the actual cartoon in spanish like it was actually like Hanna barbera made the cartoon and actually cast a spanish voice actor that's cool yeah so it was kind of interesting this picture is respectfully dedicated to the scientists of our country don announces at the start and particularly to professor huckleberry hound Naturally. It seems Huck's mind saved the research station we're visiting in this cartoon from a terrible fate. Well, whatever it could be, 
Huck's just calmly singing Clementine while seemingly mixing chemicals. But it's just a chocolate soda. No wonder he's so relaxed. Nothing dangerous there. Just some good old-fashioned soda pop. Hey, yep. hey, listen, have you ever made chocolate soda from scratch? That can get dangerous. The narrator asks about Operation Spud, and Huck's happy to oblige. And the story begins, where else, but Idaho. Now, all taters have eyes, but one in particular had a brain. And somehow, having a brain meant he could grow arms, legs, and a mouth. Admittedly, the first two could be just repurposed vines. So for a science fiction story by way of a family cartoon, this isn't now-wait-just-a-minute territory. Yet. The Spud wants to replace the animal kingdom with one of vegetation, and with him as king. He tries to rally his fellow taters, but for all his brain power is good for, it doesn't comprehend why he's the only one with a brain. No one ever said having a brain made you smart. Look at politicians, people. Yeah, and some current CEOs. Yeah. Yeah, too. So if you want something done right, you do it yourself. By the way, uh, Poison Ivy called. She wants her world domination plot back. <laughs> now, the spud induces a growth spurt. Okay, this is a little weirder. And starts walking through a suburb, freaking out the locals. I wish I could grow that e- easily. Yeah. I wish I could shrink that easily. I wish I could grow that easily. Per a radio report Huck is listening to, the potato pest ripped up the Golden Gate Bridge! I have a bridge yeah. to sell you! Yeah, Hanna-Barbera didn't have anywhere near the budget for that back then. That's going to make shooting this episode of Full House real hard. Huh. Uh, you can also tell that this is a later... Uh, this is from one of the later seasons because Huck's design is way more stabilized in this short compared to the other ones. He's more on model. Professor Hound gets a call from the White House next to Snyder's Bakery. Ha! <laughs> Regardless, Huck takes the job and hits the streets, but gets stalled by the Spud grabbing his car while he's in mid-search. Now we get a sense of the Spud's scale. He ranks in around, given the height of the average sedan, roughly a little above Mighty Joe Young's size. Yeah. yeah. Not quite King Kong and definitely not to Godzilla levels. But you know, if you cut him up, you might be able to get enough of uh, hash browns out of him to feed a fire department. Huck isn't scared and insists the spud put the car down. He should have said gently. Huck still shows no fear with science at his side versus the spud's muscles. Even as he's thrown into the air, narrowly dodging one chimney, hitting a second one, and not even once losing his nerve. This is the stuff here, baby. This is my boy. I, I, I love the animation of him just looping over that first, like, just managing to somehow slink his body over the first uh, chimney. That was actually kind of, that was well done. Huck ups his game with a helicopter and a new scheme, trying to lasso the spud. It's not exactly subterfuge, is it? Nah, well, you know, sometimes the simplest plan is the best one. But in this case, I think he was fishing for something a bit too big for himself. Huck is convinced his brains will beat the Spud's muscles, and he's quickly proven wrong again. A foot chase ensues, and Huck tries to hide in a hollow log where his foe can't follow, but the Spud turns the log into a dart gun, sending Huck into the same chimney as earlier. He'll have to talk to the owner about that one. 
That's what home equity is for, as well as homeowners insurance. There's this part, this think this falls under the act of God clause. It's a thing. Check it out. Huck relates that he has to get back to his lab to think of a scheme, a.k.a. take a nap. Hey, sometimes you do your best thinking while sleeping. While he was thinking, though, the spud lifts up the whole lab. Now our hero is getting riled. And when he gets riled, he starts running! Huck tries to go for his experimental rocket, but with the spud so close behind, it turns out he can trap his pursuer in it. And then the spud turns the thing on and blasts off. And then he gets sent to World 3-2 in Super Mario Brothers 2. Wait, no. Works for me. That's more plausible explanation than what Nintendo came up with. (laughs) Back in the lab, Huck explains the spud is now a spud Nick. (laughs) I like that. You can't blame us for that pun, Sunset Slade. That's in the cartoon itself. Yeah, we, we can't take the blame for that one. The spud's low orbit is coming back around town, and Huck goes out to observe, mentioning there's still a lot of explosives on the thing, so the spud... Blam! Soon enough, it's raining potato chips. I hope it's fully salt and vinegar. Well, they're probably plain, but I mean, I'm sure you can put a little salt on those. Fair, in vinegar. That's my favorite. I weirdly just like plain potato chips, but... Hey, no, there's no no hate. <laughs> those are good, too. <laughs> now, setting aside my nostalgia, are these the best cartoons in creation? Nah, it's an uneven package. The pre-war and foster material can get a little too dry, in fact. But it's Dawes and Don who really elevate pedestrian material to being not just watchable, but enjoyable. And when they do hit on a good gag or a solid script, they can sell it perfectly. Like Chrissy said in our Scrappy-Doo podcast, Hanna-Barbera owes so much to their voice actors and direction for their success. And this is Exhibit 1A. A good actor can do a lot with a bad script, but a bad actor can't do shit with a good script. And this is early TV animation. Without Huck here, we probably... I mean, who knows where the uh, landscape would be right now. This is the stuff that, like, founded, like, TV animation and a way to do it on a shoestring budget. And to Pemmy's point, how popular was this show? As one instance of this show's pervasiveness, there was a sign in a San Francisco bar that once read, No noise, no tinkling of glasses during the screening of the Huckleberry Hound show. This was such a massive hit, in fact, it was a cross-generational hit as popular with college kids and adults as it was with children. It got to the point where Hanna-Barbera even did a mock campaign for president for the old dog. Best of all, the show won Hanna-Barbera the first ever Emmy for an animated series, which would be the first of five the studio would win. I'm sure Kellogg's is sitting there going, told you so. <laughs> I, like I said, th- this was the thing that put Hanna-Barbera on the map. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, this is what made them huge, pretty much. And it, it caused a big TV animation boom, so... We wouldn't have a lot if it wasn't for Huckleberry Hound here. Huck's show ran for four seasons, the longest running of all the funny animal anthology series that Hanna-Barbera put together. But he would inevitably be overshadowed by that bear in the pork pie hat. Hey! You see, Yogi spun off from Huck's show after two years, with the spot on Huck's program being filled by the somewhat similarly premised Hokey Wolf. Except, you know, 
Instead of sounding like Art Carney, he sounds like uh, Phil Silvers. <laughs> An imitation that Dawes Butler would use for a couple other characters, too, like Hair Bear and the Hair Bear Bunch. It would ultimately be Yogi, who would prove to be the biggest star between him, Huck, and, well, every other Hanna-Barbera character in this family. And he'd be the one to lead the various Christmas specials, revival shows like Yogi's Gang, and so on. Yeah, well, I would say that if you were to name what is the most popular thing that came out of Hanna-Barbera, it's obviously Scooby-Doo. But I always felt like Yogi was the mascot for Hanna-Barbera. I think Yogi was, I th- I would agree with you on that. I think Yogi was the mascot for Hanna-Barbera itself. But Huck was rarely that far behind his former co-star. Even Boo Boo missed out being in Galaxy Goof-Ups and Yogi's Space Race, but Huckleberry Hound made it in there for worse. Oh, I'm not looking forward to talking about Galaxy Goof-Ups. <sighs> of course, That's... in 1988, Huck finally returned to the starring role with the previously mentioned TV movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Huckleberry Hound which would sadly be the final performance of Dawes Butler as this character and most of the others he established in the late 50s and early 60s. Did he pass away? Yeah. Along the way, though, Huck's slow-moving and unflappable nature would sometimes be reinterpreted as him being lazy, like with him lounging around in Yogi's space race. I never liked it when they portrayed him as lazy, because he never really was lazy. He was just easy going he was kind of lethargic but not lazy there is like a difference but yeah i i think they did that in uh in what was it called oh it was the freaking uh fender bender 500 which was a another kind of attempt to revive wacky races except this time with uh hannah barbera alumni characters plus dick Ashley and muttley and that one actually had dick Ashley and muttley win in an episode yep you gotta throw him a bone So following this, Huck's appearances became more and more sporadic, with some guest spots on the previously mentioned Wacky Races revival where Billy West would perform the voice. But today, he's appearing in his most prominent role in years, on Jellystone, as the mayor of the town of the same name. Jim Conroy has inherited the role for this iteration, basing him off another gentle soul of television history, Fred Rogers. And it brings him back to his amiable and serene roots to such a vast extreme, which is par for the course for the over-the-top Jellystone and much of C.H. Greenblatt's work in general. Fair, but also considering it's Jellystone. Yeah. Huckleberry Hound would also be the apparent favorite Hanna-Barbera character of Funko founder and former CEO Brian Maserati. Among other things, how else would you explain Huck being right outside their big store in Washington State as a 10-foot statue, when Scooby-Doo is easily the more relevant character from that studio. If I remember right, Funko did a short-lived uh, uh, web animation where uh, Huck was a regular character on it as kind of the... Uh, it was done in a talk show format for uh, Fun- uh, Fun- Funko Fred or what is it? whatever. Freddy, Freddy Funko. Right, and uh, Huck was like the uh, co-host of it. So if I can filibuster for a moment, folks. I couldn't put my finger on it when I was a kid, but somehow Huck just stood head and shoulders over most of the rest of the Hanna-Barbera cast of characters to me. I never cared how dated the animation looked. 
I was just happy to be watching this patient, comforting presence persevere, and more often than not, win the day. He was the best possible cartoon everyman. Just enough of a personality so he's not bland, but not so over the top that he can't fit into certain situations. Yogi was Hanna-Barbera's trickster character, Fred Flintstone, the hot-headed sitcom archetype, and Scooby-Doo, the lovable coward. But Huck? He was down-to-earth in a way even Mickey Mouse sometimes couldn't be. A calm harbor amid a sea of wilder and much more outlandish characters. He's definitely one of Hanna-Barbera's most versatile characters, considering they can practically put him in any situation, and it works. Yeah, he's... You know, and the th- and the thing is, is I like how they made him a hound dog because most of the hound dog breeds are pretty chillax dogs. Like their their attitudes are fairly laid back and very calm until you tick them off, and they get very rolled up very quick. I always enjoyed Huckleberry Hound. Of course, I'm also a dog person, so like any dog character, I'm just like, I love you. But um. He's he's fun to watch. Like, eventually, at some point, Yogi gets annoying. Sorry, Yogi lovers out there. But hey, hey, hey. Yeah. But somehow with Huck, no matter what situation he's in, he's just soothing to watch. If that's a thing, just he's just you just sit there and he's not. He, you don't know what you're going to get in the situation with him. When the Hanna-Barbera intensive version of USA's Cartoon Express ended in 1992, so Turner Broadcasting could start up the Cartoon Network with that library of shows, we wouldn't get that latter network for four years here in the Rochester area. Girl. Oh, USA hung on to the Smurfs and Scooby-Doo for a little longer, but without the vintage Hanna-Barbera funny animals, and especially Huck... It wasn't the same for me personally. Reruns of G.I. Joe and the real Ghostbusters, which were what replaced the Hanna-Barbera back catalog, didn't scratch the itch for that amiable character I'd grown to love. I just couldn't figure out then why I missed watching this character so much. But looking back as an adult, I kind of realized that as an anxious kid whose temper often got the better of him, things I struggle with to this day... I realize now why Huck meant so much to me. I must have saw in him what I wanted to emulate more in my life. Aww. Aww. You're a good man, Huckleberry Hound. I hope that didn't come off as too melodramatic. Nah. No, not at all. When we're younger, I mean, you gotta remember, when we're younger, the first... We look to TV and things we watch, is, and we look at these characters. We look to these this media of cartoons to see things that we want to see in ourselves. We look up to different cartoon characters uh, for values and for things we want to be. I mean, to some people, it's like, it's a cartoon. But, I mean, Huck is slow, is very even-tempered. He's slow to get up. He's very slow to get riled up. He looks at life, you know, he looks for the best in people. You know, he's an admirable character. In many ways, he's a good person. He's a good character for kids to have as a role model. You know, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, certain things in the 80s and 90s, why they were really actually looking at cartoons and saying, hey, you know, 
kids actually learn to look up to these characters. Let's do something that's a little more positive for them. It wasn't a bad thing. I think they took it a little bit too extreme on certain things, but it wasn't a bad thing to do. We look to, in childhood, we read books, we look to media, um, and along with our parents for role models and things to model behavior because we don't get born knowing what to do. And cartoons, are they're quick, they're easy, and it's nothing to look at a character and say, I want to be like that character. There's nothing wrong with that. It's natural and it's normal. I couldn't think of a better person for you to want to be like than Huckleberry Hound. Well, that basically sums up my thoughts on the character. Did you guys have anything left? I want to cuddle him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he does, uh, other than the stuff you've mentioned, which, you know, I don't want to repeat the same thing. I do like that he's blue, um, simply because that's one of the uh, early Hanna-Barbera design philosophies that I love. Is just, oh yeah, we've got a blue dog and a pink mountain lion. It is fine. <laughs> Well, and, there, and as much as we like to say it sticks out, there is an actual coloring of dogs that is blue. Like there blue are, healer. yeah, there's a blue healer. They're known. It's actually, I think, the coloring is actually known as mural. Uh, as blue coloring in dogs is known as mural. But yeah, there's a blue healer. There's a blue. There's a blue tick hound. I mean, so it's not too far out of the possibility for a hound dog to have blue coloring to them. So a pink mountain lion. I have not seen any. Oh, what the what is the word? Uh, I haven't seen proof of that yet, but that doesn't mean that Mother Nature's not going to prove me wrong at some point. I just want to heavens to cryptid lions. <laughs> I just want to cuddle him. He just looks so cuddly, and with all the stuff he goes through, you're just like you just need a hug. All right, so James. Yes. So, uh, because your birthday, this is your birthday episode. I have a gift for you. Yeah. Because we did it for Pemmy. Oh. And you all completely missed my birthday because I wasn't on this, totally on this thing, uh, on board this yet. Here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear James. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yay. And I'll have to make you a gift at some point. <laughs> so you get to have your favorite breakfast cereal. Okay. Golden grams it is. Woo! Got to try that with oat milk because it tastes awesome. Hmm. I've never actually had oat milk. It's not bad, actually. And folks, we're going to leave it there. So adios, amigos. See ya. Bye. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.